Luke chapter 20, as we press on through Luke's gospel, and Lord William, by sometime this year, we'll finish Luke. Well, for those of us who were here the last time, and we considered as Jesus was challenged in the early part of chapter 20 by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, this somewhat official group from the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership of the nation of Israel there in Jerusalem. They've come and they've questioned Jesus for His, what's the basis of your authority? What, what are your credentials for you doing what you are doing here? And Jesus responds to them with the question that they refuse to answer because of fear of men. And then last week we considered the parable of the vine growers, the parable of the wicked tenants, however you want to refer to it there, in verses 9 and following. It was very clear in the minds of, of those who, who heard that parable. They realized very, very quickly, He's talking about us. And their response to what Jesus states in that parable, the conclusions that are very obvious in their minds as they have heard Him speak, He's implying here that this is us, that we are the wicked tenants, and that he is going to, that the kingdom of God, as Jesus states, as, as recorded in Matthew's account, will be taken from us and given to those who produce the fruit of it, which in fact it was. And their response in verse 16 was when they heard they said, May it never be. This cannot be the case. So, needless to say, the scribes and the chief priests have been embarrassed. They have been infuriated by the parable of the, of the wicked tenants, desiring but unwilling to act against Jesus. Again, because of, of fear of men, it states to us here in verse 19, the scribes and the fair and chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, but they feared the people. So what do they do now? What's the next plan of attack. What do we do? We've, we've been embarrassed by Him, but we can't just let this go on. We can't ignore Jesus. We've got to address this. And so, we see here in the next few sections of this chapter, as we'll be considering over the next few Lord's Days, those who come with the intent of entrapping Jesus by His words, let's get Him to say something that will get him in trouble, that will turn the people against him, and if nothing else, that we can have him arrested. That there'll be someone who will find fault with what he's saying here. So they come as those who pretend to have these honest questions, perhaps even wanting to appear as though these are honest questions of conscience and that we need wisdom and insight to be given to us on this. And so they ask the questions hoping to ultimately to box Jesus into a corner and to be rid of Him, as our text tells us here, beginning in verse 20. So follow with me here, reading in verses 20 through verse 26. So they watched Him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch Him in some statement so that they could deliver Him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful? And here's the question is it lawful before God? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his, at his answer, they became silent. Pastoring and parenting have a lot in common. <laughs> Dealing with 
problems. You know, those of you who are parents, you can certainly identify with that. Most of you have never been a pastor. Let me assure you that it is true. <laughs> that there are problems that often arise. And so sometimes you will have people who will come and you spend a good bit of time listening to problems. And you, you can talk with some people. You listen to the issue that's before them. And sometimes you can, you affirm, you know, you've, you've nailed this thing. You do have a problem. You recognize what the problem is and you can go from there. But oftentimes the case is, as with parenting, you know, our children will come. Our children can come sometimes. They can be all sullen. Their heads are down. And, you know, what's wrong? Well, I've got this problem. What's this problem? So they'll tell you their little story. Oh, this is my problem. And, you know, as an adult, you can kind of step back and analyze that. You may not say it, but you're thinking, that's not really the problem here. There's another problem. There's a more important, for, and perhaps at times, an overarching issue that needs to be addressed. And so likewise, the case many times in, in counseling as a pastor, uh, many times the fact is there are people who come with their problems and you realize that there's a whole other set of problems here that need to be addressed, that need to be dealt with first as a priority. And then these other things will actually, that you've addressed the problems, will to a large degree be taken care of. Now, can you imagine with me the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests of Jesus' day as they've gathered in Jerusalem and they're, they're huddled together in a little holy huddle and they're thinking about what's going on and you would see something of a serious spirit in their midst and no doubt you could go and there are probably some who are somewhat sullen in their appearance and you could go and say, what's wrong? And they would clearly say something along the lines of, we've got this problem. We've got a problem. And what is your problem? Our problem is Jesus. He's a problem. You know, they've recognized that there is an issue that needs to be addressed. Our problem in our minds is one thing. Jesus. And what He is doing here. But we know the reality is there's a much bigger problem, isn't there? The problem that they have, in spite of what they may think, is not Jesus. In fact, Jesus is, to be somewhat trite, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. But in their thinking, their problem is all narrowed down to, to one person, one thing, Jesus. Be rid of Him and all of our problems are really solved. But they have a problem of self-righteousness. Ultimately, the big problem, the ultimate problem of sin. And they've not recognized how serious a problem that is. And so in coming to Jesus, in dealing with Jesus, they come as you might expect them to be, as you might expect them to do. And it says there in verse 20 and that they came and they watched Him and they sent spies who pretended who pretended to be righteous. And actually the Greek word there was a, is a root form where we get the word righteous and righteousness. Some of your translations may use the word they pretended to be sincere or they were pretending to be honorable here. And they're coming to Jesus with this question, this pretense of righteousness. But the problem with that is that Jesus and God sees beyond all the surface, doesn't He? He sees through the pretense. He sees the, as it's described here, He sees, verse 23, detects their, their trickery. And sees right to the heart of the individual. Now these people are content with, with a form of righteousness, and in this case, to appear that they are coming with a measure of righteousness and goodness and integrity and in honesty and in sincerity. And they're doing none of that. They're coming in pretense. Pretending to be something that they in fact are not. Pretending to be those who are honest inquirers. So it's a reminder to us here that God looks beyond the surface of things, doesn't He? That God sees 
the heart. God sees the, the inward places, those things which we can, we can hide from one another. And those things that even in many cases, we have the capacity to hide from ourselves, don't we? The Scripture tells us that the heart is deceitful. Deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And what one of us would dare say that we know our own heart? You know, sometimes I'm, I'm shocked again into reality of just how, how wicked this heart of mine and how deceitful it can be. And to know that that is where God sees. He's not, he's not distracted. He's not confused. He's not led astray by the external appearance of things. But He sees to the inward parts of our being. And if that be the case... We must make sure that we are not falling in the trap that we see here of simply of pretense, of religious pretense, or a pretense of righteousness. And we're going to look at this morning the problem with pretense. And we're going to consider three things about that in our text here. The problem with pretense. When it, we're speaking here of, of righteousness, we're here speaking of our relationship with God. And the problems that we see here with the, with the scribes and with the Pharisees, with the, the chief priests, and which we can see even in some measure our own, our own hearts. Well, first of all, the first problem that we see here, this pretended righteousness is this, that it is contrary to Christ's righteousness. It is contrary. It is in opposition. It is opposed to Christ and His righteousness. You couldn't draw the lines of distinction any clearer here, could you? It's pretty clear you have two opposing sides in this encounter here with Jesus and those who have come with this question and this attempt to, to trick Him or this attempt to, to, to cap, catch Him in something that He says. In one corner you have Jesus. Jesus who is the Christ. Jesus who is the Messiah. This one who is indeed righteous in every word. Righteous in every deed. Righteous in every thought. Everything about Jesus is righteous. And in fact, He is revealed to us in the Scriptures as righteousness itself. And for those of us who would own Christ as our Lord and Savior, we identify Him as He is Christ, our righteousness. So here is Christ in all of His righteousness, all of His goodness, all of His perfections. And then in the other corner, you can, you can draw the group up and there are the enemies of Christ. The enemies of Jesus, the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, according to verse 1 of chapter 20. And likewise, in verse 19. And we've seen earlier, back in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, that there were those who trusted in themselves. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they were good, that they were right. And here we see this group in direct opposition to Jesus Christ, set on destruction. Set upon the destruction of, of Jesus Christ, again, who is perfect righteousness, perfect goodness. Because they realized the implications they realized that if Jesus is right, we are wrong. And in light of that, realizing the implications, if He's right, then we're wrong, they simply resorted to this mindset. We are right. He must be wrong. That's the mindset of these people. And when you have these sides, these distinctions so clearly set before us, you realize that there is absolutely no place here for compromise. There is no place for a coexistence that let Christ and His goodness and 
Him be right on some things and we'll be over here and we'll be right and we'll just coexist with our right and with His right. And it doesn't work that way. That when one opposes Christ, that when one rejects the righteousness of Christ, he must trust in another righteousness and generally it will be his own. And so you find here There's not a coexistence. There is an opposition. That they live contrary to the righteousness of Christ. They cling to their own righteousness. Hence, they refuse to admit their need of another righteousness. To admit their need that they need something outside themselves. And the theological term that we fall back on, they are refusing to recognize their need of an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from without, that is, that is given to them. They live in contradiction. They live contrary to Christ's righteousness. And thereby, they forfeit any claim, any claim to the righteousness that they so desperately need. And that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul describes the the state of the Jews in Jesus' day and writing to the church at Rome. He says in in Romans chapter 10, I want to turn there very quickly. Romans chapter 10 as Paul reveals his own heart and his, his desire for his fellow kinsmen to hear and to respond to the gospel. He says in verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them. Here speaking of, of the nation of Israel and for the Jews. For them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And verse 3 For not knowing about God's righteousness. See, here's the problem. Not knowing about God's righteousness, they, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, what is this righteousness of God? They didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God because they sought to establish their own. What is it? Well, the righteousness of God God is that which we see in the Scriptures, particularly in in the letter to the church at Rome. We see that it is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ upon sinners. It is His merit supplied to our account, to our record. It's the righteousness that Martin Luther came to see in the re- as he led the Reformation and recognized that the righteousness of God there is not God is righteous as a damning word to His soul, but the righteousness of God is the righteousness that God gives and He bestows upon those who need to be reconciled to Him. That is the righteousness of God. It is perfection. The perfections of Jesus Christ applied to our account. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what a horrible position to find oneself in as we see here of these enemies of Christ to be so insistent upon one's own righteousness, upon one's own goodness that they refuse to admit Of what they truly need. And they miss the righteousness that is available from God Himself. And such is the condition of all who refuse to acknowledge their sin. That if we refuse to acknowledge our sin, we refuse to acknowledge our need of the righteousness of God that comes through Christ. Then whatever state we find ourselves in, we are living in contradiction. We are living in opposition to Christ. Now that we cannot come to God in any measure of our, of our goodness and in our virtue or in our good deeds and say, Lord, here, let me do this part. But we must recognize that everything, all of our righteousness is contaminated by sin, that we come to the cross of Christ with nothing. 
We've no virtue to offer. We cannot offer a 10%, even a 1%. We've nothing. And to cling to any measure of righteousness outside of Christ is to fall to the, to the lie of, of self-righteousness. And is to miss the righteousness that God offers. And is to stand as an enemy of Christ. There is no middle ground here. You are either one who has submitted your heart to the rule of Christ, or you are one who still counted as his enemy, as his foe. And so these who would claim their self-righteousness, we need to understand here to have any measure and hope of self-righteousness, self-preservation, personal goodness or virtue, it sets you on course opposed to God. You're against Him. You're contrary to Christ. Because we have no virtue. There is no spiritual neutrality. And we've either recognized our need of a perfect righteousness that it comes through Christ and Christ alone, or we've still clung to some remnant of self-righteousness and by doing so, forfeit the righteousness of Christ. And as respectful and as reverent as one might like to be, there is no reverent way, there is no respectful way to say to God, I do not need this Christ. You can't do that. There is no way to come to God and say to Him, I don't need the provision that you have made in your Jesus. You can't do that. And so to reject what is offered in Christ is to embrace one's own self-righteousness, one's own personal goodness, and to be an enemy of God, and to be an enemy of Christ. We either stand today as the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, and of His righteousness, or we stand clothed in Christ's righteousness. And that's the only alternatives that we have. And so the danger here that we see, the problem of this, of this pretense is that if one would walk with a pretense of righteousness, you simply set yourself up as an enemy of God. You've nothing to bring. You've nothing to contribute in coming before God. So we must be those who renounce any measure of self-righteousness, holding to Christ alone. Christ alone is my salvation. The merits of Christ alone are sufficient to bring me to God and to believe my own goodness amounts to simply refusing God's provision So to pretend righteousness, to pretend goodness is to live a life that is contrary to the righteousness of Christ. You simply set your righteousness up against his. And by doing so, you forfeit any possibility of the righteousness of Christ being yours. Secondly, we see here the danger of the problem of pretense here is that it creates a counterfeit righteousness. It creates a counterfeit righteousness. That's somewhat related to what we've just discussed in this first point, but I wanted to bring out this. You could look at these religious leaders of Jesus' day, these who have come here and are identified as the enemies of Christ. And these men lived with full conviction of their own goodness. They were convinced of that. There is a... We have a measure of goodness... And righteousness. After all, we are the people of God. After all, we have the law of God and attempt to live thereby, at least to their understanding of it. So they would look to themselves and they would be fully convinced of their own righteousness, their own goodness. We are right. See, they lived with a clear sense of right and wrong. They had a sense of right and wrong. These things are right. These things are wrong. They weren't lawless. Basically, our sense of right and wrong comes down to this. We're right. And if you disagree, you're wrong. Like a lot of us, right? 
Yet for being those who were such sticklers to God's righteous law, it's amazing what we see here in this text and their deeds. What they're doing here. Those who would, would proclaim themselves as, as being righteous, as being good. They come, look at their actions here. First of all, we see in verse 20. So they watched him and they sent spies. Well, here we are. They're going undercover to begin with. They sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so they could deliver him to the rule and to the authority of the governor. Matthew and Mark's account reveals to us that those when they came here, they says Matthew's account actually says that they their disciples with the Herodians came. Now, the significance of the Herodians being in this setting was that the Herodians were a minor group there in Israel, Jewish. They were a political party, not a religious group. And some of the particulars of them as a political party were that they supported the Herodian dynasty's rule over Israel. Only for this reason. They preferred Herod's rule over a direct rule from Rome. So, and their thinking was, we have Herod, that's better than having Rome. So they were called Herodians. They were supportive of, of Herod's family. Hence, they favored this tax, this Roman tax that was imposed upon the citizenry there because they just recognized that Herodias, the house of Herod, needed it for dependence. They were dependent upon Rome to be supported. So when this group comes, the Herodians come, and this question is asked, is it lawful to pay this tax or not? The Herodians would be very interested in answering that question. In fact, it would be a matter of debate that they would have had with the Pharisees. The Herodians would say, yes, we pay the tax because Rome's got to pay Herod, the house has got to be supported some way, so pay the tax. However, the, con the uh, Pharisees, they stood in opposition to the Herodians on this point. And their position on the tax was that it was unlawful. And I mean unlawful before God. It was against God's law for, for the nation of Israel, for the Jews, to pay this Roman tax because they demanded complete independence from Rome. And so there were all types in their and their way of thinking and the way they would justify it. There's all types of impl implications here. If we have to pay this tax, therefore we say, don't pay the tax. It's against God's law. That sounds good, doesn't it? Here around April the 15th, that sounds pretty good. But we know and we see here the intent here was not to settle a debate. That they come and they as appearing as those who have, again, these honest questions. We've got these questions of conscience that we need for you to resolve for us. Or perhaps even just questions of debate. To the, the Rhodians insist on this. The Pharisees would say this. Who's right? Is it lawful to pay the tax to Caesar, verse 22, or not? So again, their desire was to catch Jesus. They only got two answers. Yes, pay the tax. No, don't pay the tax. Now the Pharisees, again, knowing, and even what they say here, that Jesus, you proclaim the way of truth. They know He's right on some things. They've heard Him teach. The Pharisees' position, paying the tax is unlawful figure that Jesus is going to say the same. Affirm their position. Don't pay the tax. It's unlawful. It's against God's law to pay this tax to Caesar. And they also know with the Herodians there that if Jesus says that, that the Herodians are going to be able to bring charges of treason against Jesus, treason against Rome. And so we see here even in verse 
verse 20 says it. The last part said they, they could deliver him to the rule and to the authority of the governor. Let's get this out of the religious realm into the political realm and be done with him once and for all. Well, let him answer this question in front of the Herodians. The Herodians will take him. They'll deal with him. They'll turn him over as a traitor to, to the Roman Empire. And that's the end of Jesus. Our troubles, our problems are solved. It's just interesting here. This concept of righteousness that these Pharisees live by. This counterfeit righteousness. It's a righteousness that somehow or another that it has no quarrel with a murderous intent toward Jesus. It's a righteousness that can justify sinister acts and attitudes, attempted deception and trickery, just just trying to get someone. This is their righteousness. And it's a righteousness that gives lip service and honor to God. Verse 21, they question Him saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and you teach correctly. You're not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Man, they're just they're laying it on thick, aren't they? But there's no sincerity. This is their righteousness. It's a righteousness that can have murderous intent. It's a righteousness that can justify the attitudes and the actions. It's a righteousness that can give hypocritical words of praise to Jesus here that they don't mean. You have to ask, in light of what we see here in the actions and the attitudes, how in the world could anyone in their right mind consider this as righteous, as good in any sense of the word? When you see the heart that's behind it, how can you say we're righteous when you have murder in your heart? How can you say you're righteous when your desire is simply to, to deceive and to trick and to entrap? How can you say that you're righteous when you speak well words that you do not mean? You just simply flatter and you lie. How in the world can you call that righteousness? But when you reject true righteousness... We create a counterfeit righteousness. We've got to have a standard right and wrong. We do. It's ingrained into the fiber of our nature. Everyone has a sense of right and wrong. But let me ask you, is it the sense of right and wrong that passed the test of God's standard of right and wrong? That they can look at their selves, they can look at their behavior, they can look at their attitudes, they can look at their intents, and still insist they are right. They are good. How in the world do you do that? And that's exactly what they're doing. They've created a counterfeit righteousness. They've abandoned God's standard of perfect righteousness, and as Paul says in Romans Establish their own. Establish their own standard of righteousness. So the reality is, this counterfeit righteousness bears no resemblance whatsoever to true righteousness, does it? No, you stand and you and you compare just the, the attitude and the heart of these men against Christ. You know, where do you look and you see, where do you see righteousness? It's in Christ, isn't it? But they've created their own counterfeit righteousness. This is right. I mean, if this is a, the classic case of the, uh, the end justifies the means, isn't it? Oh, which, this is okay because look what we're going to accomplish. So what about us? Is the standard that we live by, is our standard of righteousness, is it consistent with God's standard? Does it reflect the holy character of God? Or is the standard that makes every allowance for every sin and inclination of my heart? That I can excuse and I can justify every sin that arises because of the circumstances I'm in or because of the way I am and on the list goes. And we do that, don't we? 
I mean, let's face it, the times that we have, we have fallen into sin, when we did it, we can think back, and here was my justification. There's good reason. How many times, again, as a parent, we deal with that, don't we? With children and siblings and going at one another, and so many times you address an issue and you find out they've got justification because of what the sibling did to them first. And I realize that I'm not a whole lot different from that. I'm justified in my stinking attitude toward someone because look what they have done. Look what they have said to me, about me, or whatever the case may be. I'm justified. But that's not God's standard. And so we can so easily become guilty of creating a counterfeit righteousness. And we make sure we understand any standard of right and wrong that we adopt for ourselves that makes any allowance, makes any provision for sin of our own heart, sin of attitude, sin of our actions that we, that we can so easily fall into, if it makes any provision of that, it is contrary to the standard of God. It's a counterfeit righteousness. Christ's righteousness is a perfect righteousness. So that our sins are exposed and that we are laid bare before God. We need to beware of a righteousness that is merely approved by men. Beware of a righteousness that gives lip service, as these were willing to do. We find that in our society, do we not? It becomes more and more obvious than this at this season when we're dealing through political political campaigns. You know, it's it's so very um, proper at this point that that those who are running for office speak well to some degree of the church and of faith and those type things. But let me tell you something. You start, you start preaching the gospel of the, mess, the message of salvation through Christ alone, they will start separating themselves from you very quickly. You have just become part of the right-wing conspiracy. We live in a, a world, a society that will give lip service to biblical truth. But bears no resemblance to God's standard of perfect righteousness. So are we living by a counterfeit righteousness that we have created for ourselves? Or are we living by this God's standard? God's standard of righteousness. And thirdly, we see the problem with pretense is eventually it will concede to consummate righteousness. In other words, it will come to a point one day we're just going to recognize that there is an absolute perfect righteousness and I must bow before it. It's going to concede that I was wrong and he was right. This discussion here that Jesus has with these men, scribes, chief priests, It's not really about paying taxes at all. It's not about honoring God with your possessions. And it's not honest questions. It's about deception. It's about the trickery. It's about entrapment. It's about destruction, destroying Jesus Christ. And Jesus here... One of these moments we see, again, just His infinite and His perfect wisdom. He sees their heart and He answers them in verse 24 and 25. He says, show me denarius. Show me one of those coins that you have in your little coin purse. Show me one of those coins that you have no problem carrying around in your pocket and and trading and exchanging with. Show me one of those coins that you have. Then whose likeness and inscription does it have? Well, they said Caesar's. The coins that day, as was shown here, denarius, worth about one day's one day's work. On the front side, it would have the the, the image of Caesar. On the back side, it would have a reference to to Caesar being divine, which raises more issues for the Pharisees. 
we've got this coin here, and then it says on the back side that, that Caesar is a divine being. The interesting thing is, they don't have any problem carrying it in their pocket. <laughs> they don't mind using it for whatever it needs to be used for, but what about this tax? Which they resented the tax just simply because it was a reminder to them of Roman rule oppressing over them. They wanted absolute independence. And Jesus, as he answers, he just tells them this Roman coinage here, this is something of Caesar's domain, Caesar's kingdom. Give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. Pay the tax. That's what he says. Not in clear words, that's what he means. Pay the tax. But, he doesn't stop there. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's in verse 25, and to God the things that are God. There are some things that are not appropriate for Caesar. You give to Caesar what is his due. As God's appointed authority. As God's servant. You give to him what is due to him. You pay the tax. But give to him only his due. That he is not divine. As might be inscribed on the back of these coins. That you give some things to God and to God alone. You give to God worship and to God gratitude and thanksgiving and glory be given to Him alone. You don't give those things to Caesar. Those things belong to God. You render to Caesar His due. You render to God His due. And so the results of this interaction here as Jesus answered this question as he did his enemies the enemies are compelled to marvel at what he said verse 26 they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed being in awe at his answer they became silent silent Quite a testimony, isn't it? When the enemies of Christ here, they've they've heard his words, and all they can do is step back and say, "Man, I would never have thought of that. That's a good answer." <laughs> and they stand back in awe. But it says, it's almost like they've caught themselves. Man, this stood silent. silence here of refusing praise to whom it is due, isn't it? Refusing to give to Christ the praise that is rightfully His for the display of His wisdom here. The revelation of God's will. The silence of refused praise, but it's also the silence of defeat before Him. They have been silenced again. It would have been most appropriate in light of their response in verse 26. They, they were amazed at his answer. They would have said so, but they will not say so. And so they became silent. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 19 that there is a day when all men will stand before Christ. And it says in Romans 3, 19, every mouth will be stopped. We're going to stand before Christ as the sovereign judge and all those who are the enemies of Christ, all those who are outside Christ, will stand before Him with the excuses that here on earth seem so reasonable, which the excuses that here on earth gave them every justification for their rejection of Christ. They're going to stand before Christ and they're going to see Christ in all of His glory and all the things that they've said before and would think they might say one more time. They will not say because even in their own hearing it sounds so utterly foolish. Every mouth will be stopped before Christ. 
as you see, as we see Christ in His glory, you realize there's nothing to say. There's no excuse. I am completely undone. We see that the spirit of, of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, as the Lord filled the temple and Isaiah gazed upon it, and he just looked and he was compelled to fall upon his face before God. And here's a man who, who belongs to God. And he says, I'm undone. What will it be for those who are the enemies of God when they stand before Christ? And every excuse, every objection is stripped away. There's certainly a foretaste of that here in this text, isn't there? They're silent. What do you say to this? What they wanted to say was, wow, this is amazing. But they would not say that because of the implications. So what do we see here for us? I think two things. First of all, we let the church model, listen carefully, we let the church model good citizenship in two worlds, in both worlds. That we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We render to God the things that are God's. So get out your 1040s and start writing. You know, that's our responsibility. That we, we serve as, as good citizens here. And I know that there are some that would object and have all, all types of concerns and excuses about this. And let me just simplify it for you. As it has for me. Number one, the answer to Jesus here is, I think it's very clear. The implication is, he doesn't say it in words per se, but the implication is, pay the tax. You have the example of Jesus when they're asked on one occasion, do you pay the tax or not? And they went, and Jesus went to the trouble of sending Peter to a fish to get the money to pay the tax. Pay the tax. The very clear teaching of Paul in Romans 13. Pay your taxes. I know the simple conclusion of Scripture implies that we have this duty to be model citizens in both worlds. Do I pay taxes? Are you kidding? I'm a pastor. I don't make enough to pay taxes. (laughs) But if I ever get to that realm, <laughs> I will. And I have in the past in other employments. But we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and we render to God the things that are God. You know, and Paul there says in Romans 13, he talks about that, that the law that we live by is one of love. And there is nothing in... The great commandment of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength that prohibits me from paying taxes. There is nothing in and love your neighbor as yourself that prohibits me from paying taxes. The law of love for God nor man, for God and man. There's nothing either of those that would say we should not pay taxes. And I know people are, well, what about what our government is doing with my tax money? Listen, you're talking about Paul saying to the church, people at church at Rome, pay the taxes into a government, into a society that's much more corrupt than you can imagine ours being. Or at least it's equal. And he says, pay the tax. Because I'm not going to stand and give an account before God for every nickel and dime that my government spends on things that I have conscientious objections against. That's not my concern. They will answer before God. Not me. Pay the tax. It's pretty simple. There's nothing, if you look at the, the, I think the, the, the emphasis, the direction of Scripture, the commandment of love for God, love for men that prohibits us, from paying taxes. So I, I disagree with those. I disagree with those who would, in the name of Christ, insist that we should not be paying taxes. I, I think you're wrong. I don't know if anybody here and I can knock that off, but if there are, I think they are wrong. The second thing is this. 
and this point of one concedes to consummate righteousness. That all those who reject Jesus as God's Christ, those objections will one day cease. They will fall empty and shallow to the ground. That God's truth of salvation through Christ alone will be made very clear. And especially when you see the one that you have rejected, they're standing before you as your judge. Judge of all the earth. Christ. And that then, the day of repentance will have passed. There will be that day when pretended righteousness, it will concede to consummate righteousness, ultimate, absolute, perfect righteousness. It will concede that righteousness, that standard was right. And the one that I have lived by, this pretended self-made, man-made, self-satisfying righteousness, was wrong and it's earned me nothing but the eternal damnation of my soul the danger of pretense may God give us grace to to live as those if there any today who have not recognized your need of the absolute righteousness of Christ the perfections the goodness of Christ applied to you to embrace him as such but for those of us who recognize that he is our righteousness to joy in that, to rejoice in what is ours in Christ and what that brings to us, what that gives to us as the children of God, to have access before God, to know that all of my sins have been removed. I don't have to justify my sins. I don't have to make excuse and allowance for my sins and my habits and my ways and my circumstances. My sins have been placed Upon Christ. And he has paid the penalty in full. Confess the sin. Be done with it. And follow after him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do give thanks to you for your words to us. And we all know, also know that at some measure we have, we have pretended And to some degree that we'll be tempted to pretend even this week. Oh, Father, we thank you for the perfect, satisfying righteousness, perfections, merits, goodness of Christ. And that that becomes ours as we come to you. And that it remains ours as the children of God. Lord, apply your truth to our hearts today as you would be pleased. We thank you that you know the need of every heart here. Lord, I pray if there are those here today still pretending in their righteousness, oh Lord, that they would abandon that to see that it's insufficient, that it's nothing more than man-made and it will expose them to eternal hell. Oh Father, bring them into yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.